Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So let's get into uh, this week's message. And let me start this week with a question I probably know the answer to. uh, But how many of you have ever made a promise in your life? Let me see your hand. Yeah, everybody. Everybody's made a promise, right? And on the other hand, how many of you have, ha- have had a promise made to you? Yeah, at some point in some way. Now, obviously, if you've ever been married, then you answer yes to both of these automatically. And we'll use that example throughout a little bit here. Uh, because, you know, we don't, we don't call it a promise, but you exchange vows. That's a word, even more of a, more of a strong word almost than promise. But that's what it is. You know, I, I promise to love and to cherish and have and to hold, you know, till death, that sort of thing. Uh, if you've ever lived anywhere that you had to pay a mortgage or a lease, you made a promise that I will pay what this piece of paper says I'm going to pay. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, there's a second side to that, that if I do not pay that, you have the right to either foreclose or evict me. That's just how that, that works. So you've made, that's a promise. Uh, even if you have a credit card, that's a promise. Now, the, the best part about it is it's, it's a delayed promise. I have time to make this promise that I will pay these charges that I I don't have the money or I'm not spending the money now. It's credit, right? But I will pay it. And the credit card company is like, you can just take your time on that. You know, you just take your precious time on paying that back because they make tons of money on the interest rate, obviously. Uh, And so that's the same thing. If you've ever been married or lived in a house or apartment or ever had a credit card, you've made a promise. And maybe you've had someone on the other end of that where they, maybe they've borrowed money from you. And what do they say? I promise I'll pay you back. Like the next time I see you, I promise I'll, you know, I'll pay you back. And sometimes they do and maybe sometimes they don't. And uh, so, you know, that's just how it goes. And that leads to this idea of broken promises. I think we're all too familiar with that thing, especially in the political world. You know, uh, Ben Franklin said there are two certainties in life, death and taxes, but I'm going to add a third one, lying politicians, okay? There's a, that, that's a certainty in life. Now, not all of them do it all the time, some more than others, and, but, you know, everybody has, right? Uh, and we'll talk about that one a little bit later, too, maybe why that happens at times. There's an, you know, other broken promises sometimes happen in sports. So a coach will agree to coach a certain team or university, and they're going to sign a, let's say, a five-year contract. Well, the school agrees to pay them a certain amount of money, but they're also agreeing to be there for that contract. But both of those sides, those promises are broken all the time. If the team doesn't perform and it's year three of five, the team will fire that coach or cut that coach. And if the coach decides there's this opportunity, there's a step up at a bigger university or at a better professional team, I'm sorry, I know I made this deal. I know I signed in in ink on this contract, but I'm going to take this other opportunity. So there's, you know, broken promises even in that way. And sometimes, not to make anybody feel guilty, but we've all done this maybe with our kids, you know. You promise you'll take them to get ice cream, but then something comes up, 
and you forget or you're just so exhausted, you're like, we're not going anywhere. But you promise, you know, we as parents, we've all, you know, had to let down even our own children uh, with this idea. Technically, again, not to lay blame or make you feel bad, but technically it's a broken promise. We've all been there, done that. And so we're going to start a new nine-week series today called Promises, Promises. And what we're going to do in this series is look at some of the key promises found in the Bible. Some of these that we'll talk about over the course of the next couple months are some of the most famous scriptures in the entire Bible. Some of the most famous verses in the Bible are promises from God. And so we'll look at those the next uh, few weeks. Today's going to sort of serve as an introduction to this idea of God's promises. And so to kind of get us in the mode of where we're going to go, today I want to talk about this idea uh, that God is the God of the promise. He is a God of promise. So there's one thing about God that we know, and we'll, that's what we're going to look at today, is that God makes promises and he always keeps them. Every promise God has ever made, he has kept. Every promise he ever will make, he will keep. And we'll look at that today. Let's start here. Numbers 23, 19, a very interesting verse here. It says this, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? There's a famous sort of mythical, legendary story about George Washington, our first president. So when he was six years old, the story goes, his father gave him a brand new hatchet for his birthday. And so as a six-year-old with a hatchet will do, he goes and starts chopping up stuff. And so he ends up chopping, not, some legends say he chopped down a cherry tree. Some legends say he just mangled it or whatever. Basically, he did enough, a six-year-old doing what a six-year-old will do with a hatchet Uh, He makes enough damage to this cherry tree that his father that evening uh, confronts him about it and says, George, what happened to our cherry tree? And the the story goes, the famous line, six-year-old George Washington says, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I did chop down the cherry tree. Okay. Now, did that happen? Probably not, but it's a fun story to talk about, you know. But you can imagine, yes, a six-year-old probably would would do that. But the famous line, I cannot tell a lie. Well, God actually, really cannot tell a lie. That's what Numbers 23, 19 just told us. There are only a couple of things that God cannot do. Yes, your pastor just said there are some things God cannot do. One of them is lie. God cannot tell a lie. Why is that? Because it goes against his character of perfection. It goes against his nature of holiness. He cannot tell a lie. God is incapable of of doing that. And so really for us, if we're talking about God keeping his promises, that idea, that certainty should be a comfort to us. Because maybe you are waiting on something that God has promised you and you're like, I don't know. Time's a ticking. You know, where's God? What's happened? Has he forgotten? Has he changed his mind? Has he said, never mind? Is that what he did? Well, no, God cannot lie. There's a portion in the New Testament as well with the Apostle Paul, and he's writing uh, a second letter to the Corinthian church. So 2 Corinthians in chapter 1, he kind of starts out with a little bit of personal business, and he's telling them that he's had, unfortunately, a change of his travel plans that he cannot help. And so he's trying to tell them, hey, it's not that I didn't want to come see you, it's that I was, he, didn't, he doesn't give the details on it, but he says there's nothing that could have been done. You know, you have a, a flight 
canceled or delayed. You can't help that. You, weather plays a part in travel and other personal circumstances that change your plan. So he's basically trying to say, hey guys, I, I'm not, I wasn't lying. I did want to come, but I wasn't able to yet, but I'll get there. And Paul does what Paul does is that he uses even a personal instance in his life as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Because he says, hey, if you think I'm a man of my word, just how, how much is Jesus a person of his word, right? And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he says this. He says, for, Christ, for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. That key word there in that verse that we're familiar with is this word amen. We, we use it several times in a church service. We, every time we pray, we probably end it with amen. So that's what he's saying. So that word, he defines it as meaning yes. And if you dig a little bit deeper in what that word means, it's sort of this word of agreement, I'm ending this prayer, a, a professor of mine in college, he, de, he defined it or described it this way. He says, you know, I think of amen as, God, let it be like that. That's how I'm ending my prayer when I say amen. God, let it be like that. Um, and so it's kind of like when you download something new and you re- have all the terms and conditions that you don't read, but then you click, I've read them. That's basically a digital amen. <laughs> I have read and agree to the terms and conditions. That's what that's what amen is. Let it be like that. And it, it kind of goes back to the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's basically amen. In a single word, a single thought or idea, that's what it is. And so what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians is, with God, if he's promised it, it's as good as done. It's done. Now, we, we work in time. God does not work in time and space. He's above and beyond that. And so we don't see it in those terms in that way, but that's how God is. If God says it, it's as good as done. You can take it to the bank, and that check won't bounce, okay? So God always keeps his promises, but here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. There are three important, what I would call caveats or qualifiers to God's promises, So this is not me defending God when he doesn't do what we want, which is kind of where we're going to start this discussion. But it is important that we view God's promises correctly. Because if we don't understand why he says what he says or what what he says actually means in the grand scheme of things, we will tend to feel disappointed many times. Or we will misunderstand and then be like, oh, I'm, oh, okay. We'll find out way later when maybe it was past the date that we should have known uh, how God works. So we're going to look at these three, I think, important qualifiers when it comes to God's promises. He always comes through. He always keeps his promises, but it's important that we understand correctly how those promises work. So here's the first qualifier that we'll talk about with God's promises today, and that's an, it's an important one, and it's this. Your wish does not equal God's promise, okay? Your wish does not equal God's promise, there was a story of a guy who was at uh, a garage sale, and he bought this cool-looking lantern lamp kind of thing, and he bought it for five bucks and took it home, and he was trying to clean it off, and so he was, you know, rub- rubbing it with the, with the rag and everything, and, and this genie came out of this lamp. And the genie, you know, he's like, oh, that was the best $5 investment I've ever made. You know, the guy's thinking this. And so the genie 
tells him, yes, I'm a genie. I'm going to grant you three wishes, but I'm a special genie. I'm what they call a mother-in-law genie. And I will just say, my mother-in-law is downstairs, but this is not about her. Okay, this is not a true story. I'm, uh, it's a joke, okay? But the mother-in-law genie says, I will grant you whatever three wishes you want except for more wishes. We already know that's not allowed. However, here's the catch. Whatever I grant to you, your mother-in-law gets twice that. And he's thinking, well, and he and his mother-in-law, they weren't on great terms. You know, they weren't pals and buds. And so he's having a hard time with this. He's like, well, yes, I want all this stuff, but I don't really want her to have twice as much as me. She's going to rub it in, you know. And so he's like, okay, I'll just, I'll go through with it. That's fine. And so he says, for my first wish, Jeannie, I want a billion dollars. And the genie says, well, you understand it. That means your mother-in-law gets $2 billion, right? And he's, he basically clicks the terms and conditions. Yes, I'm fine with that. Boom. And so he goes on his phone and checks his bank account and sees a billion-dollar deposit in his account. And so he calls his mother-in-law up and he says, Hey, I haven't talked to you for a while. You need to check your bank account right now. And she's like, What do you mean? He said, Just check your bank account. And she checks and sees a deposit of $2 billion. And she says, What has happened? And he tells her the story. He says, I'm telling you, I know it sounds weird, but I bought this lamp thing and a genie came out. And whatever I get, you get twice as much. You're welcome, you know. Uh, and so she's like, okay. And so that's the first wish. He hangs up the phone. And then he says, okay, Jeannie, for my second wish, I want a huge 15-story mansion. And he's like, now you understand, your mother-in-law gets one twice that size, right? He's like, I know, I know, I'm going to do it. And so he makes the wish, he clicks the, he clicks the terms and conditions, and boom, he's suddenly in this huge mansion, I mean, it's got everything you could ever want, like bowling alleys and Olympic-sized swimming pool and all sorts of, everything you can imagine is here. So again, he calls his mother-in-law and says, hey, uh, where are you right now? She's like, I don't know, but it's pretty amazing. He says, yeah, that's your new home. And she's just blown away by this. And so he hangs up the phone and he's thinking really hard, okay, I've only got one more wish. I've only got one, what should I wish for? And so the man says, I've got it. He says, Jeannie, I want you to scare me half to death. Right, that's the story. Again, not about my mother-in-law, okay? So please don't tell her that I said that. But we sometimes have this misconception about God's promises. It's that, well, if I want it, God has to give it to me. Sometimes we can treat God like a genie. If I rub the Bible enough, <laughs> he will give me what I want. If I read the Bible enough, he will give me what I want. If I go to church enough or give enough or do enough, he will grant my every desire. And that's just not how God works. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can treat prayer like we're sitting on Santa's lap. Okay, God, here's my list. Here's my needs. I need you to come through for me, you know. And we just wait for the December 25th spiritually, and it just never, the guy with the sack of toys never comes and shows up like we thought he would or told him he should. And so it's important to understand that our wish does not equal God's promise. Because when it comes to God's promises, our heart matters most, and our motives matter this is James chapter 4, and we'll get here in a couple weeks on Wednesday night, guys, and we'll talk about it a little bit different, but for this purpose, this is a perfect setup here. James 4, verses 1 through 3, James writes, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? He's talking to a church here. He says, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. 
Here's the key, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And then he says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So our motives matter in what we request or inquire or ask of God. That matters a great deal. And the second thing that means really is when, as we're reading these promises in the Bible and as we're going through them in this series, this idea of context matters. When we read one verse of the Bible in the middle of a larger story, we have to understand what's around that verse. So too often, I think, we take this one verse and just pull it out and say, do that! And we're like, well, did you read the rest of that? And so let me just give you some examples of how this might work. Um, and then, but again, as we go through these week after week, we'll look at the context and see what this promise really means as we go. But here's a few examples. We might pray, you know, God, I want a long life. And so we'll read Psalm 91.16, where at the end of that psalm, uh, God, speaking in the psalm, says, I will reward him with long life. You're like, grant that wish right now, God. Make it so. Let it be like that, you know. But what we need to understand is, okay, first, this is in a, at the end of a psalm, so there's more ahead that we need to understand first. And secondly, understand this is a psalm, okay? It's a song. It's a poem. And so there are times where things like this may be said where it's not maybe a promise like we think, but it's a poetic literary device. Let me give you an example of that. So there was a song, maybe you've heard of Kelly Clarkson before. There was a song she made famous several years ago called Since You've Been Gone. Part of that chorus, she says, since you've been gone, I can breathe for the first time. Now, is Kelly Clarkson saying that the whole time she was in this relationship, she literally couldn't breathe? Like, and now that he's gone, I can breathe? That's not, she's not being literal here, okay? She's using poetic device in this song to make a point. Many times, especially Psalms and also Proverbs, we'll talk about one or two that are in the Proverbs, we have to be careful, that we don't take something that's meant in a, in a figurative way or in a different sort of context in a certain type of literature as God says he will do this thing, okay? Uh, and so we, we just need to grasp a hold of that. As hard as that is, and again, I'm not trying to burst bubbles here, but in a way, uh, if, our, if our thought process is correct, we'll have a correct understanding of how God works and his promises work. Another example, we'll say, well, I want financial blessing. God bless me, you know, rain it down. And so we'll look at like Philippians 4.19 where Paul writes, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And we say, yes, grant that for me, God, do that for me. And we have to understand this is a specific letter written by a person to a specific audience. Here's an interesting thing about as you read the Bible uh, that we don't maybe always understand but it's true the bible was not written to us it was written for us but not to us i am not part of the first century corinthian church paul was writing to that church now there are benefits for me here and now two thousand years later to grab a hold of there are promises that god made thousands of years ago that still can apply to me but the bible was not written to me it's written for me and so that's an interesting thing to understand. The principles still apply, but understand there is an original audience and we are not it, okay? And, and also with this one specifically, the financial blessings part, this is where the motives matter. Because sometimes, remember, Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs. <laughs> it's really easy to, to really have a broad definition of what my needs are, 
And I don't think that we have the same definition that Paul probably has here. So most of the things that we're like, okay, God, I need this new car. Well, I don't know about that. You know, God, I need this thing. I don't know about that. We have to be careful about our motives and the context as well. And then here's a third example of this idea that our wish is not God's promise. And that is sometimes when bad things happen, our tendency is to get upset with God. Now, maybe you don't do this, but it's a very common thing to happen. Uh, people will say, well, God should have done this instead, or why did God allow this to happen? He didn't keep his promise. Let's go back to Psalm 91. There's two verses here uh, that even Satan used to quote scripture. So if you're quoting the same scripture as Satan, watch out, right? No, I'm just kidding. Psalm 91, 11 and 12, you know, it says that he will give his angels charge over you lest your, ca- lest your foot is uh, cast against a stone. And so we would say, okay, God, we're praying for supernatural protection here. And I would say like every day that you're alive is in some way supernatural protection that we're just not always aware of. The fact that I almost got into an accident on the road yesterday, but I didn't, that's supernatural protection. But you would say, well, what about, the time, what about this person that has this incurable disease? God failed them. You talk about a, a foot being struck against a stone, like th- there's no hope for them. What are they to do? How did, why did God fail them? Again, Psalm especially, there is, there is some license here for, this is a song that a person wrote, and it's sort of a song of faith. So this is more of a how we would pray a prayer that this would happen. They're writing it in a different sort of way. They're not praying for God to do this. They're writing it as if God is going to do it. It's sort of a faith statement. So it's important that we see things in a certain way. And here's, an, I think, an obvious response to, well, why does God let people get sick or whatever? Well, why are there so many promises about healing if God promises you're never going to get sick? Those two things can't really go together. And so we have to remember, as hard as it is, because we just want to think, oh, all of these are always for me every time. Or God is always going to do this in this exact way for me every time. And we have to understand, just because we want it to be so, doesn't mean God is obligated to make it so. Just because I have a certain idea of how this might work or a wish, it, it doesn't necessitate a promise that God must keep in that way, Okay. So as we get going in the series, we'll talk about that a little bit off and on. It might make more sense as we go, but I hope that you get where I'm trying to go with that. Here's the second uh, caveat, if you will, about God's promises, and that is, we've already discussed it a little bit at the open, but it's important to understand that God's promises go two ways. God's promises go two ways. There's a conditional aspect to most of God's promises, and you might say, well, that's not fair. Like, why would God do that? Why do I have to do the work to get the promise that I need him to do? And I would just say that in many cases, as we've already discussed, most promises that we make to people are conditional themselves. Go back to the wedding vow. Those are they're conditional in, in the way that they are both said by both parties to one another. So if one person breaks that vow in some way, then does that necessitate the other person to have to just put up with that forever? Well, the contract is broken, so I'm not going to get into that discussion. That's a sermon for a different day. However, it's not that the promise you're making is conditional. Well, if I feel like it, I'll obey. If I feel like it, I'll be faithful. If I feel like it, I'll stay with you. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, the conditional part is that it does work two ways. It takes both parties to keep that thing going. And so that's the way that that works. The other example we talked about was with politicians. Now, some politicians are just sleazebags. We understand that there are people who are like that, okay? However, 
I think in some other cases, a politician's promises that they make on the campaign trail are conditional because they have to have a lot of things go right for those promises to actually happen. So someone running for president saying, I'm going to do this and this and this, hold up, buddy, you got two other branches of government you got to have on your side to make that thing happen. you got to have enough majority in the House and the Senate to pass that law that you think is so important that you promised you were going to pass. So they can say all they want to do, but that's what it is. That's what they want to do. It's not a promise that they can guarantee they can keep. There's also budgetary restrictions. If what I want to do costs $10 trillion, well, I mean, we're seeing that that can happen, that can happen, uh, but it doesn't always happen. If something is, just doesn't make fiscal sense, then just because this person promised it, it's, it's a conditional thing. So as much as we want to get on politicians for that, they, they try to make these promises that sometimes they know they can't keep to get elected. I understand that. But there are some conditions that they just can't help. Here's an example of how that works scripturally. This is Hebrews chapter 10 talking about the conditional aspect of God's promises here. Hebrews 10, first, verse 23, the, the writer here says, Let us hold unswervingly, I love that word, to the hope we profess. Why? For he who promised is faithful. But skip down to verse 35. It says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Here's the conditional part. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. You see that condition there? You do the will of God, and then you'll see God's promise. You'll receive God's promise. It's a two-way street. It works both ways. One example of this that we see in Scripture, we'll go back to another promise we've already discussed briefly, and that is this idea of financial blessing, okay? This idea that we think of God bless me financially is a conditional promise. It just is. And this is not pleasant to think about, but maybe it, we need to think about it. Malachi chapter 3, we read Malachi 3. God promises, I will open the windows of heaven and I'll pour you out a blessing so great you can't even contain it. Okay? But there's a condition connected to that that we sometimes skip. We get to the God bless me part, you know, God bless me and multiply and all this. But the condition there, he says, starts with this idea of tithing, of generous giving. It's they're connected. So we pray, God bless me, bless me, bless me. And God's just saying, obey me. Comes back to Hebrews 10. If you do the will of God, the blessing or the promise can follow and will follow. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. And even the, the, uh, a lot of the promises that we'll talk about in our series have conditions to them. There are what we call if-then statements, okay? And so we, we don't like that part because there's, there's responsibility that falls on us to see it through, but it's there. It's there. Let me give you one more, maybe more positive example or encouraging example of this idea, and that's with King Solomon. So King Solomon, is, he's the third king uh, of Israel, David's son, and right after he becomes king, God comes to him in a dream, famous account, and God, in, th in this one instance, sounds a lot like a genie, if I'm honest, okay? He says, basically, ask whatever you will from me, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, you know, famously asks, basically, for wisdom to govern the people right. He says, I, I need understanding, I need wisdom in order to figure this out. He says, I've just started... I mean, my dad built this empire. I do not want to mess it up. I do, and he didn't follow that for very long. He did for a while, but he prays for wisdom. And so God uh, says this to him, 1 Kings 3, in response to his proper motive, honestly, 
Uh, he says this, verse 10, 1 Kings 3.10, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, Because you've asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you have asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever or ever will have. And I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And, another and, if, big word, if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. So we see here with Solomon, God's promise worked two ways. And we see it in two different ways here. So it's, God says first, because you did this, I will do this. And then he says, if you do this, I will do this. Okay, so here's what he says. He says, because you ask nobly for the noble thing, you didn't ask for the death of your enemies or for wealth and riches and power. He said, you didn't ask, you asked for wisdom. So because you ask with a noble heart, I will give you what you asked for, plus the things that you could have asked for, but you didn't. That's the first two-way street. And the second one is in the future. He says, if you follow me and obey me as your father did, I will also give you a long life. But it, both of those worked both ways. And so it's important that we see, does God keep his promises? Yes, always, every time. But in most of those cases, there is an obligation on us to fulfill our end of a bargain as well. A contract works both ways. You can live in this house, the bank says, as long as you pay the mortgage. It works both ways. So that's how God also works. It's a two-way street. Here's the third and final thing that we'll touch on for a few minutes here, this third caveat of God's promises. And sometimes this is the most frustrating one, but I believe it can also be the most powerful one. And that is that God's promises aren't time-sensitive. God's promises aren't time sensitive again can be extremely frustrating sometimes but if we see it correctly it can be powerful to us let's look at the most famous the most amazing promise that's ever been given and see how that timeline worked out okay this is jeremiah 23 verse 5 the prophet jeremiah uh, says this he prophesies this for the time is coming says the lord when i will raise up a righteous descendant from king david's line he will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. So when Jeremiah is prophesying and preaching, Israel is at their low point. The, this once united, thriving kingdom has been split in two. They are constantly at war with each other and also at war with enemies around them. Each kingdom, north and south, is growing weaker and weaker and weaker. And Jeremiah is coming into this about 600 BC, saying, a time will come when the king of kings will come and fix all of this. He will come to rule with wisdom and power and righteousness, and he will make all these wrongs right. Well, that was 600 BC. So if we don't think about time, 600, and then we count down till we get to zero, that's when Jesus shows up. So they're waiting 600 years for the time that is coming, Jeremiah says. But why was that important? Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this. You need to, I need you to help me with this, with this scripture, okay? 
Help me out with this. It says, but when the what time? Yeah. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Israel had to wait 600 years for Jeremiah's and Isaiah's and all these prophets for their promise to come to pass. But I think we would agree it was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. They never saw it happen, but it was worth the wait. And it was when the right time. Other translations say when the fullness of time had come. It's not like a period of time. It's not like all of a sudden, well, it's okay. It's like God just knew it's not a date. It's a time. It's not a thing that you know. It's a thing that you just feel. This is the right time. All the conditions were right for Jesus to come in to human history. The, the uh, geopolitical situation was just right. Uh, the, the history of Israel was at the point where it was just right for God to say, now, boom, this is the time. And it was 600 years maybe late, but it was right on time as far as God was concerned. A second example that we actually talked about this last Wednesday night was Abraham. We talked about Abraham was promised from God uh, descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But he was waiting and waiting. Okay, God, when's this going to happen? I'm getting old and my wife's barren. We don't know how this is going to work. And so eventually, about 25 years later, they have a son who is the child of promise. But one child, you would assume, doesn't equal a, a nation, right? I mean, just uh, ma- I'm not a math major, but one person doesn't equal a nation. And Abraham knew that. And so guess what? Abraham saw a partial fulfillment of God's promise, and it took a quarter of a century to get there. And then he never saw, ever, ever, ever saw the, fulfill- the full fulfillment of God's promise. But did that mean that God didn't fulfill his promise? No, it just means that God's promises aren't time-sensitive. That took also about another 600 years before Israel, you know, several generations of Abraham's family later, 400 years in Egyptian bondage, then they're free on their own with their land, doing their thing as the nation of Israel. So the lesson here is wait 600 years for God to answer your prayer. <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not the answer. There's a third example that is very key to today. So I don't know if you know this, but today is Pentecost Sunday. Today is sort of the birthday of the church. Now, we go back to Jesus, right? And we know he's the, he's the founder of the church. But it was really Acts chapter 2 when the church as we know it started, the day of Pentecost. And so this is Pentecost Sunday. And so happy birthday, church. We're, we're excited. But did you know that the birth of the Christian church started with a promise? And there's also a condition to it. And there's a time frame to it. So Acts chapter 1 Verses 4 and 5, these are the final words of Jesus. He says this and ascends into heaven. Here's what he says. Once when he, that's Jesus, was eating with, him, with them, his followers, he commanded them, here's the condition, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift, that's the promise that he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's a promise of the gift that God is going to send, that Jesus will send, but there's a condition. you got to wait for it. you got to stay here. Don't do anything else until you get that. 
And so there's about 120 of these followers of Jesus who are there who watch him ascend into heaven after he says these words. So they go back into Jerusalem and they, they get an Airbnb or something for about 10 days and they just camp out. And they just have church for 10 days in this, you know, they call it the upper room. It's this house that they basically rented or stayed in for 10 days. And then on the 10th day, again, they didn't know how long they were going to have to wait. Jesus didn't say, wait 10 days in Jerusalem. He just said, wait until it comes. You'll know when it comes. And in Acts 2, they knew when it came. A wind blew through the room they were in, almost knocking everything over. And little tongues of fire were on all the believers' head. And they spoke in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They knew when the Holy Spirit came. They knew when the promise came through. They knew when the, cash, when the check was being cashed. And so they had to wait 10 days. So what we see here is sometimes it's a short wait and Sometimes it's a long wait. Sometimes you never, you wait till it's after you're dead when the promise comes through. So, but the point is, God's promises aren't time sensitive. It, it, he doesn't work that way. And that should be a comfort, even though it is sometimes really annoying that God does that. An example of that is uh, author A.W. Tozer wrote this, God never hurries. Isn't that true? <laughs> There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. So we may hate to wait, but it's always worth the wait. It may drive us crazy that God hasn't done this or that yet. It may be infuriating that God hasn't followed through yet, or he only kept part of that. Where's the rest? That's not up to us. It's up to him. So if you're waiting on a promise from God, let me encourage you, hang on. Keep, I was going to say keep believing, but I'm going to go journey. Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Yeah, okay. I don't know if that was a Christian song, but next week we're going to start, we're going to open with that song. No, we're not. I'm just kidding. If we had a good, if we, if we had a full band, we would so do that. So Amanda, get on that by next week. Okay, thanks. Don't get antsy. Don't get discouraged. Oh, God, I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm gonna... See, that's what Abraham did. We talked about Abraham. That's what he did. He got antsy and messed everything up. He tried to help. We talked about it Wednesday. He tried to help God out, and God doesn't need our help. Our help to God is danger, danger. It's not good. Here's the importance of this idea. Here's why this is so key. God's promises are too important to be time-dependent. It's too important. The promise that God has for you is too important for you to rush or you to get discouraged or you to try to get ahead or you to try to help him or you to quit on. God's promises are too important to be time dependent. It's too big of a deal. So let me ask you these questions really quick. We're going to start to wrap it up and I'm going to give you a gift in just a second, okay? It's going to be awesome. Let me ask you this. Do you think that God forgot his promise? He hasn't. Do you think that God's too busy? He's not. Do you think God got overwhelmed? He didn't. Do you think God overpromised? He didn't. Do you think God's running late? He's not. Do you think God can't? He can. Do you think God won't? He will. He will. But again, here as we close, here's the main idea. God is the God of the promise. His promises are clear, and he keeps his word, and he always comes through right on time. 
when the right time came, dot, 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 insert your promise here. That's what we're looking at. So the question that we have, the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, will we believe him? Will we follow him? Will we, by faith, wait on him for whatever time frame, for whatever promise it is, however impossible it seems, God is able. However small it seems, God still cares. However long we have to wait, he's not dependent upon time. And so it's, our, it's, it's up to us to wait for God's great and powerful promises. And so my heart is, through the rest of this series, is that we don't just learn about God's promises But my heart is, my hope is, my prayer is that we can experience the promises of God as we experience the God of the promise. 